If you're interested in learning and equity, I've learned, it makes sense to be a student of education's history. This episode is all about higher education and a failed promise to first-generation students that's rampant currently. It's the message that you're all set if you can work hard enough to earn a college degree. There was a book written in 1912 by Clayton Sedgwick Cooper. It's called Why Go to College. I'm going to read you a little bit from this book. After we have said much concerning the life and the work of the American graduate, there is still a valuable thing which the college should impart to him and through which he should become enabled to present with greater charm and with greater force the message which is in his soul. This valuable thing, at once both idealism and incentive, is the undergraduate's individual message to the world. It may be composed of knowledge, the ability to think, the faculty of relaxation, and the power to do faithfully and successfully some given task. These things, however, are all dependent upon the spirit of the actor, upon his vision, his determination, his ambition. Yes, not many women in higher ed in 1912. Upon his vision, his determination, his ambition, and unflagging attempts, the true modern university contributes to the world a great-minded and great-hearted man to whom college life has been a soul's birth as well as a mind's awakening. It gives to its youth that peculiar but indispensable thing which burned in the heart of the young art student who stood before the masterpiece and said, I too am a painter. I know, right? It's from another time. But among the comedy uh, of Why Go to College, uh, here's another little taste I think you'll enjoy. In a section on uh, the impact of college on sense of humor, furthermore, the college man's love of reality is kept in balance by his humorous tendencies. His keen humor is part of him. It rises from him spontaneously on all occasions in a kind of genial effervescence. He seems to have an inherent antagonism to dolefulness and long-facedness. His life is always breaking into a laugh. He's looking for the breeziness, the delight, the wild joy of living. Every phenomenon moves him to a smiling mood and on and on. You get the idea. But here's my question. If we've increased enrollment to college by more than four and a half million students in a hundred years, but society hasn't devised new cultural patterns that give first generation students the same advantages as every other student, what are they to do? What about their parents, if they're so lucky to have them at home, who came to this country and worked multiple jobs with the promise in the air that if their children can make it to college, they've done the work that promises their families a better future. There's a lot of complexity to this issue, a lot of intersecting challenges, more than we can take up in this episode. But I'm proud to introduce one organization working on the issue. Meet these two. I'm Kalani Leifer. I'm the founder and executive director of Co-op. Hi, my name is Monica Guzman. Um, I am the program manager at Co-op, and I am also an alumni part of C1. So here we go. If Clayton Sedgwick Cooper's idea was that higher education, in addition to uh, bestowing upon our young an amazing sense of humor, was that every student would have the chance to share their message with the world, Co-op is one of the organizations that's helping to actually see that reality through. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. Monica Kalani, thank you so much for being here. I'm excited to have this conversation. Um, I want to start with specifically with the issue that co-op is um, trying to move the needle on. And if you can tell me a little bit, Kalani, about the founding of co-op, um, where the initial spark came, and specifically uh, where it is you're trying to make the change, um, I think that's a great place for us to start. Um, I was a high school history teacher um, in the Bronx at a small public high school there uh, on Fordham Road called Kappa International, Um, and I taught 10th grade global and 11th grade U.S. history, Um, and I was teaching during the 2008 presidential election and, you know, just this incredible moment and certainly in my life, but definitely in my students' lives. And 
I guess all that just to set the context um, for a promise that I think I made to my students. Um, and I think a lot of teachers and a lot of parents make to their students and their kids across the country, across New York, which is if you go to college and uh, you, you know, you quote unquote beat the odds and you hold up your end of the bargain and you earn a college degree, especially a bachelor's degree, that should be your pathway um, or a ticket or at least a fair shot at a at sort of a decent, stable, upwardly mobile career. Um, and in the years since I've since I was teaching in the classroom, I've I've sort of more and more come to the conclusion that um, that that was a lie um, or a, or a broken promise, um, and that actually earning a degree um, is necessary, but it's not sufficient, um, and that it's young folks um, like a lot of my students. Uh, who are the first in their families to earn a degree, almost by definition, they will graduate into a world where no one's waiting to pull them into their first job. Um, and I, I think a, a theme we'll hit on again and again, uh, Monica and I today, is just that, like, yeah, skills are really important, but um, it's relationships that pull you into your career much more than your skills propel you. Um, and... Uh, you know, I think the way that we bring young folks from formal education into meaningful careers is entirely governed by social capital, by relationships. Um, and that's not what I promised. Um, you know, I, I think I, we, we have this sort of social contract, um, and I, I feel like it's kind of been exposed, at least to me, um, and I think a lot of folks that co-op sort of as a, a bait and switch. Mm -hmm. So is it safe to say um, that your hope is that enough success through co-op and other models like it that uh, teachers like you won't have to worry about uh, broken promises and um, setting young people on a path that ultimately actually doesn't do the trick entirely? Uh, yeah, yeah. If I were back in those shoes, I'd want to be able to say that kind of with my chin held high. Mm -hmm. um, and I think for a whole bunch of historical reasons, uh, there aren't that many other options than college. Um, if you're ambitious and aspirational and want to have a sort of economically resilient career. Um, and, you know, we could debate all day long if that's a good thing or a bad thing that we have this sort of one path to prosperity. Um, but in the meantime, we have that. And a lot of young folks are going to college based on that promise. And, um, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of people are betting a lot on this system. Um, and at some point, you know, the thing falls down if people realize that it's 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 you know, that they've been peddled a lie. Yeah. What's what's the one thing, when you founded Co-op, um, what's the one thing you hoped every member of that first cohort would leave with? Um, a sense, uh, um, whatever the opposite of loneliness is. Connectedness, sure. It doesn't sound quite as good, but yeah, just a sense that I mean, something we say a lot at co-op is, uh, and we sort of say it like this. So I'll say it like this: Yo, this is hard. <laughs> like, it's gonna be really hard to get start a career. Yeah, and we probably aren't gonna make it any less hard, but it doesn't have to be lonely, and we can certainly address that. Yeah. So connectedness is a great place to transition. Monica, you, in addition to being um, now more, uh, you know, co-op is a, an even bigger part of your professional life, but uh, you're also an alum. Um, would you say that as a member of that first cohort, were you cohort one or two? One. One. Mm -hmm. um, the OGs. Was connectedness a thing that you left with? Oh, most definitely. I think that's 
that's the one thing in co-op that has stayed very consistent the the connectedness the community the network um because when i graduated i really thought i was alone looking for a job mm -hmm. and then i met 12 other individuals that were in the same boat and working together looking for jobs kind of it was a little more fun um it felt like you had someone who was listening and you weren't going through it by yourself so i think that was the one thing that i really took from co-op was learning how to build connections and learning like also how to keep them and continue to build on them um yeah can you describe for um people who don't you know, maybe it's been a while, or or um, maybe they never went to college themselves, um, or maybe weren't first gen to college. Um, can you describe? Uh, I also didn't ask. Are you mm -hmm. first generation of college? Yes, I am. You are. Mm -hmm. um, can you describe what was going through your mind and and what life was like at the moment where um, you kind of opted in to co-op? Um, because I think I think that people listening and, and hearing uh, like oh what's the difference between co-op and some other club um, need to understand mm -hmm. the context a little bit. Yeah, I think after I graduated, um, like Kalani said, it was just like okay, you, you know, you did internships, like you should be able to get a job. And as I was applying, I realized that really wasn't it. Like I didn't have the connections, I didn't have the skills either. Um, so when I decided to join co-op, I just realized I had done four years of school. Like, okay, I did that. And I was just like, I just felt like I was missing something else. Um, so when I decided to do co-op, it was more of a, there's an opportunity. I don't know where it's going to lead me. Hopefully it leads me somewhere new. Um, hopefully it leads me to new connections. Like, it just, it was a whole new world that I didn't, I know I wouldn't have gotten if I had in school. Because uh, when I was in school, I think like many other um, CUNY students, we go to school, we go to work, we go to school, we go to work. We don't really stay to build those connections and those relationships. So finding somewhere like co-op where it's like we're, in, we're teaching you what's up to date in the world right now, the skills, and you get to meet some people and build some connections, to me was kind of like a gold package. And I knew I just had to take it. Mm. Like I didn't really understand digital marketing, but I knew that wherever I was, if I did co-op, wherever it was gonna take me, it was better than where I was currently. Mm. So, do you feel like when you were in high school that you had teachers or parents at home or w was your support system making the promise that Kalani just described? Like, do you feel like you were sold on that? 100%. I feel like my counselors were just like, you need to go to a good school. Like, you need to know, go to somewhere that is going to give you the, like, make those connections and do these things no matter what the cost was, right? And I felt like in high school, you make these decisions and you're like, okay, great. And then you end up going to a private school like I did. But then I transferred back to CUNY because I realized that I have the same opportunities at CUNY. Mm. Um, and I realized that being in the city would give me a better opportunity than going somewhere further and ending up with like all this debt or whatever. Right. Um, so my my parents were definitely the ones that were like, you need to go to college. Um, my sister, who's about a year and a half older than me, she went and I I never really thought about the decision of making of going to college. I think it was kind of already made for me. It was kind of, all right, you're done with high school, next step is college, and then next step you get a job. Mm. So, and... and um I wonder to what extent, like even your folks, who I think, I mean, no, no parent says that to their kids. Like you, you get, you got to go to college so that you have uh, more than what I had, or um, you know, nobody makes that promise thinking, thinking that they're doing bait and switch, right? You know, um, so I wonder even for your folks, where you were three years in or four years in, and and sort of reflecting on what your prospects are. Mm -hmm. Was it a surprise to them that you don't go to four years of college and and immediately like step into a job? Oh yeah, like I literally, um, I think after I was doing co-op, like three months in, my mom was like, "Well, you know, you you graduated already six months out. Like, why don't you have a job? Mm. Like, you went to school." And I was just like, I had to sit her down and really explain to her, that, like. 
look at all the, you know, I'm in New York. Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not the only one applying to this job. So there's people from the tri-state area. People from all over the world are probably applying to the same jobs that I have. Mm-hmm. And they just have a better opportunity than I do because people are not really looking at my resume because I don't have these skills. Um, I don't have the connections. And I, I had to explain to her the power of referral and how a lot of people actually get jobs because they know somebody. Mm-hmm. And I explained to her, I'm like, the people I know, they don't know anyone either. So we're all kind of in a in this bubble where we're all trying to get out of the bubble, but no one knows anyone who's outside of the bubble. Yeah. So it kind of just, it was like a, a vicious circle. And I think once I explained it to her really like what it takes to actually get a job mm. is when I think her mentality changed a bit about school and even my younger brother now, like, he wasn't forced to go to college the way we were. My mm. parents were just like, well, I mean, if they had to work this this hard, like, and you probably can get somewhere, too, without going to school. So now they're more, I want to say, more open-minded mm. um, and less, like, college is the path. It's the, the only goal. They're more just like, if you go, great. If you don't, that's also great. There's other opportunities and other ways for you to get a, a mm. sustainable job. That's interesting to hear that their their mind having put kids through the system and and um, now feeling like there's no guarantees um, that they're you know seeing it differently with your little brother. Yeah. Well, and if if I could jump in there, I think um, you know we do some really touchy feely workshops. One of the ones we do is around fears, where people sort of share their fears anonymously. Um, and other people share them out and reflect. Um, and we did it recently, and like 90% of people's fears were so deeply tied to letting their parents down. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of co-opers come in with this burning sense of urgency. You know, it's not necessarily that they're not going to have a roof over their head next month if they don't get a salaried position, but their parents sacrifice so much to get them to that point. And, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily think that it's, in, in that case, the parents who peddled this lie. And I agree, no one is purposefully peddling this lie, yeah. except maybe in the for-profit uh, higher education sector. Um, but that's a whole different podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's... It, it, it's there. There are real expectations that we have for what will happen after college, um, and all of us—not just young folks, but whole networks around that young person—are invested in the outcome of of, of that career search. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I, I think um, you know our, our sort of pithy uh, slogan is overcoming underemployment. Um, and for us, underemployment sort of captures this idea that you're in a you're in a position that doesn't require the training, the education that you've that you've achieved, um, and that's such a rampant, widespread thing. And I think when that happens, um, there's sort of ripple effects far beyond just that single career. Mm-hmm. Just as when it does work out and and someone does overcome underemployment and start off on an upwardly mobile career, that has really positive ripple effects as well. One of the things I want to talk about is is um, this is obviously a podcast about digital learning, and um, I think that there's a perception that all education right now is high tech. You know what I mean? And and that everybody certainly, if you graduate with a four year degree, um, you're graduating with the skills that you need for a world we live in, which is no matter what sector you're going into, is a high-tech one. Um, so, Monica, I'm curious to hear how prepared you felt from a, a sort of, um, when you think about, you know, did I have the high-tech skills that I needed? Um, and then I wanted to ask about the specific, because you guys are are tailoring some training to these Students and and uh, potential employees that are for some people will sound like fairly basic digital skills, but make a really tremendous difference. So I, I want to get us there. But how prepared did you feel um, with your your sort of digital skills at that that moment? Yeah, um, I think 
in my major, I did advertising public relations. We kept it really real traditional. So I think because the industry was growing such at a rapid pace, I don't think that I think changing a curriculum takes a long time. So I don't think the schools have the capacity to actually keep up to date with the digital skills that is needed. Um, I remember sitting in a class and someone, one of my peers, they got a job doing SEO and that's digital. And mm. I was I was like, what's SEO? Like, yeah. what are we talking about here? So tell people who don't know what SEO yeah, so is. Yeah, so SEO is search engine optimization. Uh, so it's basically um, when you do a Google search, it's having your page organically pop up in the search without you having to pay for it. Um, so Or or, inact, or yeah. inorganically, as it, yeah. as it were, right? Yeah. <laughs> so for me, I was just... Um, I didn't know what it was. Um, and I remember looking also at jobs and they requiring you know, um, light knowledge of SEO or light knowledge of Excel. And I thought I was good at Excel until pivot tables and VLOOKUPs came into play. Mm. So I I think once I left college, I thought I was well-equipped. And then when I joined co-op, I realized all the things that I was missing. Mm. Um, and that to me was just like, wow, if I am missing this, I kind of wanted to go back and tell everyone like, hey, you should also look at these things on the side because these are the things that the jobs are currently looking for. Mm. Um, and everything is just moving digital. And we just kind of have to keep up on our own. Um, yeah. So so what are the skills that you guys are focusing on? Um, yeah, I mean, our curriculum is 16, 18 weeks long, about 200 hours in all. Uh, we split that into three categories um, that we have corny names for: head, heart, and hustle. Um, so I don't, th I don't think that's corny, for the record. I, I appreciate that. Uh, head, as you can imagine, is working on uh, the intellectual, the hard skills, right? Learning new tools. Um, and of 200 hours, we spend 100 hours doing that. Um, and so the tools we focus on um, in, in our first. 38 cohorts, we focused on digital marketing. Now we also have two in data analytics. Um, but in digital marketing, we do a deep sort of uh, foundation of Excel. Um, we teach Google Analytics, um, which is basically the way most companies track what's going on on their website and follow you, the user, through the, the commercial experience or the entertainment experience, whatever, uh, everything is being tracked. And there's a, a set of skills around that. Um, then Google Ads. So when you search for a pair of Sony headphones, um, those are going to pop up when you search. And then they're going to follow you around for the next few weeks. Um, all those are um, skills. Same with Facebook advertising, Instagram advertising. These are this is where the entry-level media, marketing, advertising, analytics jobs are. They're in this space. And um, those will lead to maybe not $100,000 entry-level coding jobs, but they lead to really solid 45K entry-level jobs that within two, three years are in the 70s, 80K yeah. range. So uh, just real quick, that's the 100 hours of head um, and then we do 50 Hours of Heart, which is really focused on, uh, again, to be a bit corny, sort of really defining your own personal story and your strengths and, and then developing your professional network. Um, and by that, I really mean the time you invest explicitly in building relationships with your peers. So you go through this whole experience uh, in a cohort of 16 peers, fellow CUNY grads here in New York. Um, and you're led by a cohort, uh, sort of a set of four cohort captains who are alumni from previous cycles. And they teach this whole 200 hour curriculum. And then we have about 50 hours of hustle, uh, which is that last category. And that is all the god awful stuff you have to do to get a job. And you can never avoid it, no matter how great your connections are. You need a great resume, you need a great cover letter, you need to write a mean email, um, you need to have a LinkedIn profile that looks great and has all the right words that recruiters are looking for. Um, and then we actually even have people do 100 applications over the course of the program. Um, and maybe that's an important note, which is we learn pretty quickly in, in co-op uh, in the first and second cohorts. We can't be in the business of creating fake jobs hmm. for people. 
Um, like we really struggled to do that early on because we thought we had to create these like learning jobs. And then we realized like, yo, there are all these real jobs out there with all these competitive candidates like seeking these jobs. Like we have to set our people up for those. Um, and so now we don't promise anyone any jobs. Um, we tell our people like, hey, we'll, we'll be your multiplier of, of whatever effort you put in. Hmm. But anything times zero is zero. Yeah, because I, I think there is definite attention right now on um, internship and mentorship programs from a from a funder's perspective. And I think it's part of it is the that there's such an overwhelming quote unquote workforce narrative right now that um, I think I think people uh, often, especially corporate foundations and and folks who are looking to sort of um, get people into a, a pipeline, uh, their language, not mine, um, see successful programs as like as placing students. But in fact, what what your um, the sort of methodology that you're sharing is more about um, helping them find these things on their own, and then. Um, helping each of them then share that out. Exactly. Our, our alumni give back in two fundamental, completely invaluable ways. One is they come back and serve as coaches yeah. through the cohort captain role. The 100% of our coaching comes through that. Uh, and then two is through those job referrals uh, that Monica was talking about earlier. Um, we have this. It's like... I love this. On my phone, I have a Slack channel with just all the job opportunities in New York uh, and in the Bay Area, and it's just like overflowing daily with new opportunities coming in from our alumni network. Um, and actually, a lot of times, companies are giving bonuses to our alumni for connecting for connecting them to our people. Isn't that We're going to see if we can get in on that bonus, Isn't too. Isn't that awesome? Um, but yeah, it's like this, like there are mechanisms in the workforce that are already at play. Um, and we can kick and scream and decry those realities, i.e. the reality of referral-based recruiting. Mm -hmm. Or we can say, this is just how humans are. They uh, are basically primates from the savanna who operated in small tribes and like rely on trust. And all of that is real and out there. And it's only problematic when you combine it with how just totally segregated our communities are. Because when you combine those two things, that means employee referrals become um, kind of an enforcement of the status quo. Um, but I think the answer to that is not to, you know, completely build some artificial pipeline um, that's very rigid, uh, but rather to say, oh, okay, this is how recruiting works. This is how people work. If we just tweak this engine a little bit, maybe it can be an. Maybe we can essentially use nepotism to be a force uh, of integration rather than exclusion. Mm. There's a there's a lot in there um, to think about, and I'm uh, but but it feels so right what you're saying uh, <laughs> in so many ways. I want everyone to respond to my comments that, that way. <laughs> that I just I think everybody should take a minute and just think about that. Um, it's a really pragmatic approach, and and uh, I I love that about it. I hope two things are true. One, that part of the way forward is to be practical and and consider things the way they are, and then and figure out how to give young people the tools they need to face the system as it is. Mm -hmm. um, the other truth I hope is real is that um, uh, for somebody like me who's working at a much younger. Um, Earlier in young people's trajectory, uh, I hope that we can make enough change there that we can also systemically um, change that reality. Um, one of the questions I wanted to come back to, Monica, is you um, – there was – it was almost like you described some of the skills that um, were – you had to kind of do some remediation on, right? Like – uh, going back to Excel, for example. And one of the things that I wonder about, or and maybe people listening wonder about, is to what extent is every 
four-year college graduate leaving school with these skills as um, something that needs to be remediated? That's question one. And to what extent do you think, is it that everybody graduates without these skills and those who don't have to do the remediation are those who are privileged with a network to supplement the fact that they don't have them? Yeah, I think so. Um, actually, I know so. <laughs> um, I feel when I do interviews for co-opers coming into the program, I always ask them, how many of you actually know Excel? And mm. they all raise their hand. And then I will simply just say, how many of you know what a pivot table is? All of their hands go down. Right. And I think we... We think that just because we know how to plug in a couple of numbers and a couple of formulas, oh, we're proficient. Like, yeah. we know. Um, and I don't think the schools tell us that we don't because mm -hmm. we don't practice it enough there. Um, and when we're using it on our spare time, it's like we don't... I know a lot of us don't have people to guide us and say, like, hey, you, there's more things you could do with this. So we kind of just stick to the basics mm -hmm. until someone actually shows us all the other cool things you can do with it. Yeah. Um, so I think the people who don't who do lack it, the reason why they have jobs, the majority of people that I know is it is because they know someone mm. and that someone has introduced them to Excel before. Um, the actual job mm. and they'll tell them like hey in order for you to get this job this is what you need to learn how to do versus us we I don't feel like anyone ever told us like these are the things you need to know yeah and it's and it's not that um, I mean Excel is just a piece of software yeah. but I think um, it's a good it's a good sort of it's instructive I think it, it actually has outsized importance I think if we dropped every other skill we would teach Excel yeah because Excel is one of those skills that it's great for digital marketing, but you can really take it to any industry. Like, yeah. it just teaches you, I feel like, how to read data, how to actually create data, how to create stories with data. And I don't think, as a recent grad, like, any of us are really thinking about that or thinking about the importance of even how to just create a, a good formula. Yeah. Or, yeah. And, and I, I, I've seen a lot of different colleges and how they do this, and they all don't do it. Like... Mm. Like, this is something that comes... I've sat in on a few uh, interviews um, for our current round, and I hadn't done interviews in a while. And one thing I just wanted to, like, scream was, like, like it's not your it's not your college that, like, let you down. It's, like, no college is doing this right. Like, um, you know, like, like, you can go to the fanciest university. No one's graduating knowing how to do a pivot table unless they happen to do an internship somewhere. But even that, they're probably yeah. not knowing. Um, so so can, we, can we pause on that for a second? Did you go to Stanford as an undergrad? Yeah. Did you leave Stanford not knowing what a pivot table was? Of course not. I, I made it to co-op without really even knowing what a pivot table was. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I, I, I absolutely, and I graduated. So my, my point, my point not being, uh, is just that uh, here you are coming from, because we have a you know, living example in the room. Like you yeah. came from arguably the fanciest or one of the fanciest universities Super fancy. in, the, in the country um, saying nothing about uh, uh, you know, how you got there or the work you put into Stanford, but you graduated Stanford. Uh, that's not easy. You left without um, having the same skills that a first-generation student at a public university didn't have. Yeah. Um, What's the difference? No. Uh, I... I feel like people know what the difference what the difference is. Yeah, we yeah. don't we don't have to we don't have to put ourselves in the position of like yeah. describing a scenario that everybody knows what the difference is. Yeah. Uh, but the point being that uh, you had to go to Stanford to realize, uh, and, and then go to CUNY to realize uh, that you're both in a similar position in terms of the skills preparation. Yeah. And um, yeah. Uh, well, so as you're talking, That's a notable. lot of thoughts came into my head. One is you said it was impressive to graduate from Stanford, and I appreciate the heck out of my time there, but I think it's impressive to get in. It's not impressive to graduate. Essentially, everyone graduates. It's hard not to graduate. Whereas at CUNY, absolutely, we should do a lot of work on increasing graduation rates, but if someone graduates from CUNY, that 
is a signal. That's something that most people won't do when they start. And so uh, I actually think in a lot of ways the Stanford grad, they both don't know Excel, but the Stanford grad has all sorts of other things, right, that I, not to be deficient, uh, not to be focused on deficiencies, but like I, I think the idea is with Stanford kids when they graduate, they go into jobs that expect to train them. So I, I had two jobs coming out of college. One was Teach for America. They taught me not enough, not long enough, but they taught me how to teach. Um, and then McKinsey. And McKinsey takes people knowing they've never heard of a pivot table mm -hmm. and knowing that within three months they're going to derive all their value from being able to do pivot tables. <laughs> right. And they trust that they'll make that transition, right? right? But it has nothing to do with the quality of the candidates coming yeah. in. Yeah. Uh, and I, one, one other thing to say that I think doesn't get enough attention, which is... Um, when companies write their job descriptions, they tend to write their ideal dream candidate, right? Like, these are all the things we want you to be able to do. And um, it completely matters how you read that. When I read that, I see it and I see like, okay, I know 70% of these things. I don't know the other 30%, but I'm pretty sure I'll be able to learn them yeah. and yeah. I'll steer the conversation away from that. Yeah. Whereas someone else might see the exact, know the exact same 70%, see the other 30%, and say, like, oh, I, I can't do that. Mm -hmm. And then they just don't even apply. Yeah. But not that it matters, because you can apply and you're never going to hear back unless someone referred you. Yeah. The um, thing I wanted to come back to is related to – so coming back to the Excel example um, – my point about saying Excel, you know, is is just a piece of software is that um, I think it's easy to obsess about, you know, knowing Excel and putting myself back. It's been a minute, but uh, <laughs> putting myself back into the shoes of being a recent graduate, like Excel was definitely I, I went to film school. So um, you can imagine speaking of deficiencies when it comes to uh, employability you know, in in general terms, there were lots of things I had to. Um, I, I did some remedial <laughs> experiences around. Um, but my point was that uh, you know, Excel's just a piece of software. Um, there's a movement right now around computer science education, and I think a feeling that if we start earlier, because what Excel does. Uh, beautifully is help us understand how data m matters one and two can be um, can be organized and programmed and ordered in such a way that it can help you draw conclusions it can help you make predictions um, all kinds of things uh, and this is an area of computer science education that that people are are fairly passionate about not a lot of people are are um, hitting on right now um it's a point more than a question really but but um i think it illustrates uh to me as you're talking monica that that how important it is that we pay attention to the conversation around computer science education because i i don't think in 10 years it should be that we need to graduate with excel um i think that the argument is we need to graduate high school even younger um, with an understanding of how important data is and how how uh, manipulable uh, if I can uh, it it is um, and how you know software gives us the opportunity to to do that um, in the meantime you need to know Excel um, so you you have uh, groups of students in these cohorts going through the three um, the head heart and hustle areas of the curriculum. Um, when alumni share back what the most important aspects of the program were, is it the tech skills um, or is it something else? It's the community, it's the heart. It's always the heart. Um, I think that's what keeps our alumni coming back is the fact that the community continues to get better and they are now a part of someone's journey. 
Um, the heart, they always say the hard skills are great. Like I learned a lot, I can do this at work, but the community is really the one thing that sticks out to them. Um, a lot of our students come in not having a community, like I said before, or a network, um, and co-op really gives that to them. It mm. gives them your current cohort, and then it introduces you to hundreds of alumni that have gone through it and have been successful doing it. Um, and I think it just makes it makes it that much easier for everyone to start their careers um, and kind of go through their careers with other people who are in the exact same situations that they are. Mm. One of the coolest things I think about that is that it comes back to something you said earlier about um, how we read um, when a, a, a job opportunity comes up. Um, how how one person reads it versus another, a first-generation stu uh, college student versus uh, another. Um, one has had a an opportunity to develop an identity that looks at the 70-30 skill split and say, I can do this. Another is essentially through co-op cultivating that identity. Um, and so, when we talk about about um, remediation, is such a is such a uh, uh, what do you call it? Jagged word. It's just a weird word, right? But um, when you talk about remediation, but no, you're right. It is jagged. Um, when you talk about remediation, like this is the area that I feel like the thing that you guys do is so so important is. Uh, not everyone is getting an opportunity to build that identity that says you know, screw this uh, job description, like, this is me, you know yeah. what I mean? And and this is the pathway that I'm on. Yeah. Um, no, um, I, I think that's well said. And I think um, it's interesting to compare and contrast what people come out saying was most important and what they say they're coming in for. Mm -hmm. oh, and the vast majority think they're there for hard skills. Mm -hmm. um, and when even even the alumni who are still struggling to get jobs, they're convinced that they th the thing where if they needed remediation, it would be on hard skills, mm. and like it like continually blows our mind. E even even how fixated they can be on the the skill deficiency, mm. um, and I mean one of the things I soapbox about is like it would be so freaking awesome if this was about skills, yeah, like. Cool. We know how to fix that. Like, come up with a great workshop and then scale it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that. Like, but it's because if it was about skills, then it would be about failed institutions, and then we'd all feel pretty good, and we'd try and fix the institution, and we'd pour a lot of money into it. But it's not about skills and failed institutions. It's about relationships, and when those are broken, then the only people we have, the only thing to blame is ourselves. So I, I, I know I've been harping on this, but I think. Um, I, I think everyone's been duped into this idea that uh, that that there is some huge deficiency going on in our college grads, maybe particularly in our CUNY grads. Like that's an assumption that we all just started with, and it's I think certainly worth revisiting. Yeah, I think it's important to state here as a sidebar. Um, that we're talking about, uh, a lot of people don't know the acronym CUNY, so it's mm. the City University of New York, which is, is uh, the biggest and one of the most... In, it's the greatest it, urban university <laughs> in the world. There you go. Says their new branding campaign. Yes. And me, though. So, mm -hmm. that's two things. Um, but anybody nationally can hear CUNY and uh, substitute their local public university. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, no, but he, I think I think in part what what you're saying, if if I'm if I can paraphrase, is that uh, and and be so corny as to use the show's title for a second, is that there's no such thing as a hard skills training that solves the um, underemployment issue for first generation college students. Yeah, it's not. It's not about candidates being. The candidates aren't broken. Like, yeah. sure, the candidates can get better, just like every candidate. Um, but there is no economy of one, right? Like the, the entire commerce and the economy and the workforce and the labor market, like all of that requires at least two people. It's about like it's about whatever value is created between those two people. Yeah. Or the three hundred million people. Yeah. Um, yeah. The so, other the other lesson. Uh, 
so well put. The the other lesson that I'm I think is worth stating is is don't go get any high tech education without an education that includes relationships and the opportunity to cultivate the kind of identity that Monica you're talking about where um you have people around you, a support network where when you're looking at the application and seeing that you don't know 30% of the things, that still you still have the sort of um, the confidence and, and sort of self-efficacy to know, you know, this is me. Screw the, screw, screw the description. Um, I'm going for this. Yeah. I mean... It, like Kalani said earlier, it's interesting co-opers when they first come in, um, they'll they'll be looking for jobs in the beginning of co-op and they're like, oh, you know, I don't have this. And then we're like, I think co-op does a really good job by telling them you don't have one to two years experience. That's OK. Anyone else applying doesn't either. Like mm. apply. You're still you can still get there. Like that's mm. just a requirement that they put to like filter people out right you still want to apply you don't want to get filtered out yeah um and then by the end i feel like once they become an alumni and now they're transitioning to um like a a three to four year career they're just like yeah i I can totally do that like i don't it's okay if i'm missing 40 percent. like i know that (laughs) they'll train me and those are things that i think at co-op is what we really instill in people is just like don't let the job description fool you because Mm -hmm. it's it's like the ideal thing but at the end of the day these companies they're going to invest in you they're mm. going to take their time figuring out what are the things that you lack and then teach you those things yeah. because at the end of the day they just they put i feel like they just put those things to really just get a smaller pool of candidates so that they don't have to like really look through all of those well, yeah, cuz maybe they yeah. get lucky and you get an entry level person with 4 years experience doing exactly the job you want to hire them for like maybe that works out for you and you wouldn't get that unless you put out such an aspirational job description. Like, I kind of get what's going on in their heads. But, um, yeah, I like this way of thinking about it, that, like, over the course of co-op, right, let's say there's the, let's say there's 100 things you need for a job. The very first thing we need to do is convince them they're not at zero. Um, and I think a huge part of what we're doing is helping them become aware of how much they already have to offer, how much they developed actually while they were undergrads at mm-hmm. CUNY. Um, so realize you're not at zero. Next, like get you from like 40 to 70 or whatever. Um, and then, but like we're not going to get you to 100. We're going to get you to the point where you're comfortable knowing you can get to 100 um, if you have to. Um, and so, like, half our people don't go into, um, like, search engine marketing, like, the most specific thing we teach. They go into adjacent fields um, using similar tools but different tools. Um, and the employer looked at them and they're like, oh, they don't know the tool that I need them to know. But they know this other tool that's just as boring and complicated. Mm-hmm. And if they master that, they can master my tool, too. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of what we're doing is, like, getting them comfortable um, with the meta skill of learning how to learn and having the confidence that they can do it. Um, And Excel ends up actually just being a great, like, sandbox in which it's, like, it seems like a a skill from the 80s or whatever, and maybe it is. I think that's when they invented spreadsheets. But, like, it still is just, like, such a great context in which to learn the stuff that... Um, will make you successful at all these other tools that are yeah. getting you good yeah. jobs. Um, can we talk about that, the um, starting from zero phenomenon? Um, like when you were filling out applications and they were doing the one to three years experience, I heard you earlier say I was working and doing my degree. Did I mishear that? Yeah, um, but by working, it was like I was babysitting and doing my degree, right. um, which a lot of our students, like, they're working at Starbucks, they're working at Apple, they're doing that, like, those jobs. Um, but no one's really doing, like, no one has a part-time office job or part-time, like, salary job. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yet but yet, still likely more experience in a workplace yes, but um, be- than a lot of their applicants. Yeah. But, but I... I found found this in uh, teens that I work with uh, as well. When we when we talk to them about putting together a portfolio to apply to college, um, this comes up all the time. Like, oh, I don't, I, I don't know how to respond to this essay question. I don't have a lot of experience um, having to 
uh, overcome obstacles. And, uh, you know, we'll say, you mean, you, mm-hmm. you know, like when, when you go home and take care of your younger brother and have to also get your homework done and have a part-time job, mm-hmm. like, you know, and, and a light bulb sometimes goes off, but often it's like, yeah, but that's yeah. not, that doesn't yeah. count. I think a lot of us, if it, if it's not related to the thing that we want, we're just like, they're two completely different things. Yeah, it's just life. It's just life. Like, I, we had one co-oper who worked at a grocery store, and I remember she was doing her resume. Mm. She's like, but I, like, I didn't do any of these things, and I'm like... Running a store, doing being in charge of money, like having employees, that is all relevant. You just have to tailor it to the job description and make sure that your experience is is um, relatable to that. Because yeah. you do have these, um, you have these skills. You just don't know that you have these skills because to you it's just life. Yeah. But it's not life. It's like you're doing the thing already that you want to get the job for. Yeah. Yeah, and that's something we've been learning, actually, on how to help people get ready for interviews is for a long time we were just, like, getting folks ready, I think, to tell their best version of their story as if they were, like, doing it in a vacuum in a sound-padded room like this one. Um, But, like, in an interview, your job is to connect an absurdly specific human, you, to an absurdly specific job opportunity. Not any job very specific idiosyncratic job um with all the politics around that job and all Mm. that like it's a specific job and your your one task in the interview is to connect the dots between those two things um but that's hard to do i think for anyone um and so like early on in co-op um when like i had no idea what we were doing i certainly didn't have enough curriculum to fill all the hours you were expecting like i often told folks like look there's two things I'm doing. I'm locking you into a room together. You're going to fall in love with each other. <laughs> like, at the very least, you have that. Um, and second is, like, let's figure out how to talk about the things you've already done before you walked into this room. So um, you have a, a part of uh, the website, and I want to talk about some of the data because uh, I promised to come back to it. Um Hundred billion dollar appetite for talent. In um, this is specifically this this stat is in digital marketing. Hundred billion dollars um, in talent. One hundred seventy five thousand job openings. Digital marketing remains six percent black and Hispanic. Uh, referral based recruiting reinforces the status quo, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so so. It's it's pretty um, it's pretty intense to think about a young person who's coming out of a public university, likely a person of color, likely first gen, um, to go onto the floor of a big ad agency, a big high tech firm, and see a sea of male, one uh, white predominantly an Asian. Um, and I wonder to to what extent you guys talk about that in co-op and like and and um, how is co-op a set of relationships that helps um, that helps, you know what I mean in in seeing that contrast and trying to envision oneself uh, in that place where you might actually only be uh, likely you're less than six percent. Um, do you yeah. guys talk about that? Oh, yeah, we definitely talk about it. I think in the beginning of co-op, it was a little harder to um, it was a little harder because not many co-opers were in these agencies. Um, so going in and being the only person of color on their team really did um, create workshops for us that we need we realized we needed to talk about in co-op and realize like you know the only way that we're going to continue to make these agencies diverse is technically through referrals at this point um, now that we have so many alumni within these agencies like there's one specific agency that I saw when I first saw them they were their floor I'm not kidding was just like completely white males yeah and now there's about 
about 45 co-opers there. Um, wow. Yeah, and it continues to grow. So now that floor that once was all white is now, it's a little colorful. That's pretty and, amazing. And the cool thing is, as our co-opers continue to, to get promoted and get new positions, they're eventually are going to be the ones that are making the hiring um, decisions. And we, we really believe that they're going to start impacting um, just the workforce in agencies in general because... Mm -hmm. Pretty soon they're going to start hiring more coopers, yeah. and more coopers are going to hire more coopers. And these agencies, their diversity numbers are definitely going to increase. Yeah. And I know it's important for the agencies to get these numbers and continue to make it more inclusive for everybody. So it's kind of like a win-win. Yeah. Um, coopers get higher positions, make the hiring, bring more diverse candidates in, and create better ideas and campaigns. Yeah. I love uh, as you're describing the um, how colorful the floors are of some of these agencies that are hiring co-opers. I'm checking out the logo on your sweatshirt, which is the yeah. co-op logo, <laughs> which is essentially a rainbow across the four letters, which I love. Um, in your impact statement, on uh, I pulled most of this stuff from your website. 81% uh, of alumni work full-time with salary and benefits. Overwhelmingly, those in digital marketing and analytics, 70% um, reach the milestone within six months. That's pretty amazing. Uh, Full-time alumni earn 45K in year one, which is um, three times the pre-program average, $54,000 in year two, and almost 70K in year three, two times the average income of the CUNY peer group, uh, and on and on. You guys, you guys have a lot of good impact data, um, so it's impressive. You guys have um, some great data on outcomes so far. You're so far you're in your fourth cohort no we're in our fourth year fourth year our 40th cohort wow um cohorts are our key metric i don't know how much meaning it has externally yeah. a cohort is basically about 15 peers yeah. who go through the flagship program together right um, yeah. currently we run uh, six in new york and three in san francisco yeah so, so tell me about the West Coast growth. How did that come about? Um, well, maybe unsurprisingly, it was started by alumni, um, specifically uh, Monica's counterpart in the Bay is Rochelle. Uh, she's an alum from Cohort 2, and she's been our program manager out there since the beginning. Uh, we started about a year and a half ago, so we're still kind of very much starting up out there. Um, but we are blessed to have uh, a great counterpart to CUNY. So out here we have the City University of New York, and then out there we work really closely with San Francisco State University. Yeah. Um, a smaller scale than, than CUNY, um, but just such a great institution, really deeply embedded in the community and in the Bay Area more broadly. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's the same model. Um, we're, uh, I think we've run eight cohorts out there now, and we have a, a full bench of cohort captains uh, who've come through the program out there. Um, we found it takes about a year to go from total scratch in a city to kind of reaching that tipping point where you have enough alumni uh, to run the program and be a source of opportunity. Mm. Um, there's like kind of a nitty gritty mm -hmm. startup year uh, yeah. to go create that energy. Yeah, what have I wonder? Um, it it's so rich <laughs> that that the Bay Area is what it is in the last ten or fifteen years um, for the tech sector and and all of the sort of quote high-tech jobs that that we're talking about uh and yet there you are um coaching uh young people uh to think about what their next steps are in a, a world that i think the perception is that um it's like chock full of opportunities and and jobs are kind of falling out of trees yeah i uh, mean to me that's I, I think there's need for things like co-op all across the country, but to me, our model and certainly our mission is connected to these like dynamic urban tech hubs that get so much buzz and really are overflowing with with tech-related opportunity, and just none of that goes to the kids who grew up there. Um, and I think New York and the Bay Area are probably the 
two best slash worst examples of that yeah. uh, in the country. So, uh, yeah, on some hand, on, on one hand, I can totally see why, like, why would you be in New York in the Bay? Like, these are the places where there's a ton of opportunity. And like I said, we're not creating new jobs, at least not yet. Um, we're connecting people to competitive open positions. Yeah. Um, and so we need those jobs there. And I think what we're trying to overcome is the irony uh, or the injustice of having all those jobs and all those candidates like in the same square mile. Yeah. Uh, I spoke in a recent episode, I spoke with a group in Pittsburgh who I think um, need to know you guys and and, uh, are going to be excited to learn more about what you're up to. Because if you think about what I learned a lot about in that episode is the, the sort of the evolving narrative in Pittsburgh and into what has become a, a high-tech hub, um, but one where I think that a lot of people, in a lot of people's minds, is still sort of um, an industrial town. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the question of like of who who's moving to Pittsburgh for these high-tech jobs versus what kids are growing up in Pittsburgh um, that are taking advantage of, of uh, what's coming. So, um, for you, Monica, ideally, uh, five years out, what does co-op look like? I think five years out, we'll be in three other cities. And I think co-op will remain very true to its mission in all five cities, but have each city be unique in its own way. Um, And I think in five years, I would love to see everyone who was early on in co-op hiring the co-opers who are just finishing Mm. and really seeing how we're changing the dynamic of the workforce. That's where I see co-op. How about you? Perfectly said. And um, yeah, I think one of the cool things about co-op is um, like with every year we sort of pull back another layer of the onion and I'm mixing metaphors, but basically the first group of alumni, the group that Monica was a part of, like every year, every six months, they are entering a new uncharted phase of what post-co-op careers can look like. And we keep seeing new ways in which we can support them on that journey. And then selfishly, all the thing, new things that they can do mm. uh, to support new co-opers. So yeah, we are getting to the point where there's going to be more and more, you know, managers out there who are making that hiring decision, um, and they don't even need to make a referral. They can cut out the middleman and just come straight to us, and um, that's really exciting to me. And I, I think one thing we really try and keep in mind as a team, um, and I think Monica put this really well with this idea of being locally, like having local integrity mm. wherever we go, is. Um, our job is to create something that creates its own energy. Um, so I think we can, we, we sort of, I think we have the ingredients, we, we sort of have a philosophy of how to do this, but like our job is to get that thing to a point where it stops requiring our energy and just starts creating its own. Um, and then it's a matter of like using that power responsibly and intentionally. Um, but you know, like we have a sort of maniacal focus on getting people good jobs and 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 sort of climbing the income ladder, right? What well, we're excited to see them making X in their first year, but three years later, we want them, you know, making almost twice that much. Yeah. Um, so I'm rambling a bit, but um, you know, the basic idea is I think we're we're creating some sort of a renewable resource. Um, and I hope we're still doing that in five years. And I hope, um, yeah, I hope we're doing it in about five cities. And if you walked into any one of those co-op communities, like you might know that it exists in other cities, but it wouldn't have to, you know, yeah. like that it's really something that feels connected to whatever the local CUNY is and whatever the local industry is. Um, I hope you won't take this the wrong way, but... I hope, if we look 20 years out, I hope there's no need for co-op. Um, and I hope, uh, and, and not hope, I, I do believe um, 
you know, I think uh, it gives me a lot of hope to meet you guys and know that you're doing the work that you are, and um, and it would it, it makes me believe it's possible that we that we work it out of. Uh, out of existence in 20 years. Uh, and I think a lot of people listening will want to do whatever they can to help. So I really um, appreciate that. And it, yeah, I, I hope we work ourselves out of existence. And I think this basic idea that how we choose to use our professional favors, who we're making introductions for or not, like that stuff matters and it adds up. Um, and if we use our connections and our social capital purposefully and maybe even progressively, yeah. Um, then, yeah, I don't think co-op will be necessary, and that will be our exit strategy. <laughs> right. Where should everybody find co-op on the web? Visit us uh, at co-op.cx. That's C as in Charlie, X as in X-ray. Or C as in career and X as in accelerator. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, anything else we should be plugging before... before uh... We sign off. Yeah, I kind of just want to plug in recruiting. Um, co-op starts back up again in the fall, and applications are actually launching April 15th. So if you are a recent CUNY grad or a rising senior that's looking for some credit, um, definitely apply to our program. And, and same in the Bay Area. Same, same in, in the Bay, Bay Area. Yep. Great. Yeah. Uh, I would be happy if you guys want to send them my way to include those links on the show notes for the uh, for this episode. Right um, Kalani, Monica, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. It's been thank a you pleasure. so much for having us. This was fun. <laughs> for more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share with me, find me on Twitter at ma lesser. No Such Thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in Episode 1, an Olympic fully clothed hotel pool swimmer. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. This show would not be possible without support from the good people at Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us online at mouse.org. <laughs>